Hello everyone, and welcome back to Disruptive Voices. My name is Katriona Gold, and you're listening to UCL Grand Challenges mini-series on critical global health. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Rochelle Burgess, who is Associate Professor at UCL's Institute for Global Health. Thank you for joining me today, Rochelle. Thanks for having me. So, as you know, we're speaking today as part of UCL's Grand Challenge of Global Health, which is supporting an initiative to connect and advocate for critical global health scholarship at UCL. And as part of that, we're trying to establish how UCL scholars are understanding and working with the concept of critical global health. So, Rochelle, that's my first question to you. What do you see as a critical approach to global health? For you, what are the key issues we need to be thinking about? Well, I must say I was really excited when you guys told me about the initiative, because even though I'd never sort of seen the term put like that before, I immediately felt that it resonated with what is required of uh, global health for the future. And I say that in sort of full acknowledgement of sort of the tensions in the field at the moment. I think the term decolonization and decoloniality has come into this moment in the field as as if the term is a tabula rasa as, as you know and i i've sort of really sort of struggled with sort of seeing its use in being increasingly applied in sort of all these different spaces around the academy and the reason that i just found such a not a problem with it in global health but just a bit of a like i don't know a crawly thing on my skin is because of where global health comes from you know global health is a lineage of health interventionism that is linked to histories of colonialism and extractivism, basically. And when you start to look at the critiques that global health has faced over the in the last few years, it's very much been about the fact that there hasn't really been a true decolonial turn in the field. Because if you think of decoloniality or decolonialism as a space where we are free of imposed theories, as Waro Hunes, uh, he is a academic from the States, and he writes a lot around decolonialism in general, not specifically in relation to global health, but he sort of talks about it as a world free of imposed theories. And that very much is what sort of decolonial activists from the African continent, from South America and Latin America in the 60s and 70s, were about this sort of shedding of the imposed theories and concepts and practices that have been forced on them by external forces. And if you think about global health interventionism, for lack of a better word, that's all it is. Global health is very much this idea of the transposition of solutions to global health inequalities that, for better or worse, at the moment come from high-income country locations to use a very sort of rough division or categorization of place. And it seemed really strange and inappropriate for anybody from those places doing the imposition to use that term, because by proxy of that positionality, nine out of 10 times, you can't really be overthrowing anything because you're the thing that's theoretically should be overthrown. Those are very heavy words, <laughs> but, you know, that, that is basically the roots of decolonialism, the overthrowing of a colonial power. So when this idea of critical global health comes up, it says to me that I was like, oh, well, that's what everybody else should be doing. Unless you are from the historically dispossessed in your sort of bodily form, then 
you need to be doing something else. You shouldn't be using that word. But there is still so much work to be done. There's so much important work to be done, like in collaboration with bodies and people and places from the quote unquote South. You should be critical of your positionality, critical of your power, critical about the concepts and theories that you use, critical about your way of engagement with others, critical about everything, questioning it. So it's about a constant process of not just like reflexivity, because reflexivity doesn't automatically lead to different practice. So what I sort of like about this idea of of a critical engagement, it sort of feels like it brings the questioning a bit closer to action. And I guess I have a sort of natural inclination towards that term of criticality because my background and my training is in a branch of psychology that is critical of itself. So I'm a community health psychologist and a critical health psychologist, which basically says health psychology and community psychology are wonderful disciplines, but there are problems within them that we must constantly be aware of in terms of how we engage in our practice. So it felt like a very welcome term for me to sort of negotiate with and and sort of, I guess in a way, find a home for the types of practice I was already engaging in that was critical by nature of the fact that I'm trained in sort of critical theory to begin with or critical praxis to begin with. So critical global health is potentially a useful alternative to framing things in terms of decolonization, maybe a more appropriate way to frame things. Would that be an accurate characterization? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, this idea of sort of like liberation and self-determination that is part and parcel of the decolonial interest cannot be done by people and places truthfully and honestly, or maybe can't be done, but I think it would be difficult to do it. It just, I don't think it can be done from the outside. It has to be done from the inside. So a critical global health is aware of that, but thinks about how you go along or could potentially be helpful to those processes and sensitive in your engagement with others who are going along in those processes. There's a a sort of a methodological paradigm that I think is really important for global health. And I, shameless plug, I talk about it in my book that will one day, Lord willing, be finished. Actually, no, it's it's due like in three weeks, so it will be finished. Um, but it's uh, transformative paradigms. And a methodologist named Donna Mertens, her book is on my shelf somewhere, it talks about transformative paradigms. It has a lot of sort of resonance as a sort of epistemology and ontological position towards research and knowledge production that has some shared lineages with sort of decolonial methods, but thinks about it actually more towards the fact that the research engagement is usually 90% of the time an unequal one. There's the researcher and the historically researched. And so how do you position yourself within that in a way that sees the research encounter as an opportunity to do something different, to transform power relations, to transform the location of and ownership of power. And it thinks about that, not just between researchers, but also down to the level of communities. So I think there's lots of talk in global health right now about how we sort of make global health research more equitable. And there's lots of people in our department who do amazing work in those types of practices, in those types of spaces. And I think the next level moving on to that is sort of actually to everyday citizens on the ground. And so how do you work with 
communities. And so as a community psychologist, that's my research and that's my work so that your research is also transformative for them in the short, medium, and long term. And she gives us some nice sort of direction in thinking about how to go about that. Thank you for the further reading. That's always helpful, right? (laughs) Where do we come from intellectually, right? This is something that we should be sharing. I'm looking forward to seeing the book (laughs) down the line. I guess it would be nice if you could tell us a bit about how this plays out in your own work. So what are you working on at the moment? Well, I am working on probably, my husband would say, too many projects, but I think I'll talk about a couple of them. I mean, most of my work is around mental health in context of adversity. And I use this very broad framing on purpose for two main reasons. For one, um, it allows me to go where I think work is needed. So it doesn't sort of pin me down to a particular context or, or place though I tend to get pinned down to context and places by the relationships I build anyway, but it it keeps it broad enough. And then the second thing it does is it allows me to do something that is still not really done in global health, which should be, and I think is another plus of this idea of critical global health as a space. It allows me to work with the South and the North. So that means it allows me to think about bodies that are historically marginalized and oppressed that might live in quote unquote high income settings and to think about them within the boundaries of the global health lens. So it upends that traditional directionality in global health where it's, you know, high income doing stuff in low income. And it actually says, hang on, I look at the stories of communities that I've worked with in South Africa, and I have also done a lot of work with Black communities in South London. And the narratives of structural inequalities and oppression around mental health are very similar because the vectors of oppression that create those challenges are similar. They just are directed in different locations and have different historicities. And I think that that has allowed me to sort of recognize that idea of the South and the North. And D'Souza Santos, Boaventura D'Souza Santos, has done a lot of amazing writing on decoloniality and all of that. And he wrote this book, The End of Cognitive Empire, which very quickly became one of my favorite books. And in that book, he sort of pushes us, it's just one paragraph, but it stayed with me so deeply (laughs) that we must not forget that there is South within the North. People move, but also that the Black, Brown, marginalized groups of many different backgrounds and identities who experience marginalization are found in rich countries and their stories are similar and their needs are similar. And in a way, our fights for justice can potentially converge. So for me in global health, throwing off those sort of normative ideals is a big part of sort of saying, I do global health work. And I also do it in London because it needs to be done in London. It's not just about me going to Zimbabwe or going to South Africa or going to Colombia. It's also about me going to Southwest London. It's also about me going to North of England and talking with people who are oppressed by the similar systems of injustice and whose health suffer because of it. And so I guess the two projects I would talk about very quickly. So in Colombia, the work there that has sort of, I think, encapsulates a lot of what 
I've been talking about today in terms of this idea of transformative paradigms. There's a project that we've been working on around bottom-up mental health systems and what we're doing there in a community in the Kakata department is that we are looking at how everyday citizens can become more involved in the organization and the building up of mental health services. It's an ESRC funded project and what we have done after a year of sort of very deep dive with communities about definitions around mental health and mental ill health and more importantly care and logics of care and treatment sort of gathered this idea of what mental health means and what it would require to enable it. And now through PLA groups, we are sort of putting communities in dialogue with actors in the mental health service to sort of build responses to challenges in collaboration with communities. So asking them about where they think services should go and supporting small projects of change that are then supported by the mental health services. So it's almost like saying everybody in this community is a potential mental health service user and everybody in this community is potentially at risk because we live in worlds that expose us to mental health risk through structures and relationships. So how do we all take ownership of it and how is that ownership recognized by the system? So can we put people in dialogue, systems and communities in order to build responses together? And what we're hoping that does is not only get people to be more aware of mental health, which is a big important thing in sort of addressing mental health needs, but also getting systems to recognize the everyday knowledge systems of communities as valid contributors to driving solutions. So rather than saying, okay, we're going to teach you about symptoms and that's where the intervention stops, that's only the first part of the intervention and the rest of it is about supporting projects of change that community groups build. And then in London, it's sort of a similar thing. I've been really lucky and honoured to work with a community organisation in Wandsworth called the Wandsworth Community Empowerment Network for many years. And they do a lot of co-production work around mental health. And one of the sort of big projects that they've built up to over about 15 years something called the Ethnicity and Mental Health Project. And in this project, which is supported by a local mental health trust, it's very much about shifting and transitioning resources into community hubs for the delivery of mental health support. So for example, there is a sort of a community hub that is located in a local church where people can go and access care delivered by lay health workers in the community, upskilled sort of pastors and uh, faith practitioners who have done specific types of training and different types of therapy, like family therapy is one particular modality. And then it's also added different bits to that sort of structure, linking in different NGOs, different trusted families and communities, and building up a constellation of interventions that work to strengthen and improve mental health in everyday community sites in collaboration with the Mental Health Trust so that the Mental Health Trust is still there, but it's actually removed isn't the right word, but their ownership of everything is reduced. It's been distributed to people who have that embedded knowledge of community life, of cultural life, of religious and faith-based 
identities that are part and parcel of what enables good mental health to happen for some people. So it's about this moving of power, right? So like shifting these concentrations of power and not just thinking of the shifting of concentration of power between like researchers and practitioners or you know, practitioners and like a board of community members, but to everyday citizens, everyday citizens who create the backbone of what a community is able to do and how it functions and recognizes the existing strength and the existing ability for self-determination that exists in so many communities of every different type and uses that as the starting place for building up systems and structures and support. I think that's really interesting and I think really valuable to hear you talk about that because I think sometimes people hear the word critical or critique and they think of a sort of tearing down and that can be part of it. But I think what you're showing here is that critically minded practice can also very much be about building up and organizing and taking a holistic approach to these kind of broader questions. Mm -hmm. You'd agree with that, but I think that's really valuable work. Is there anything else you'd like to add on that project before we wrap up? I guess if I'm saying that critical global health is about questioning, I guess the sort of final thing I would say is that there's two questions I've asked myself since my PhD. I've told this anecdote so many times before, but I'll tell it one more time, that when I sort of went to do some interviews in my work, I went to see this woman. This was in rural northern KwaZulu-Natal, and I did life history interviews, so I spent entire afternoons, sometimes a whole day with women just talking to them. And when I finished the interview, we'd been talking about her life and mental health and all these things. She said, and I have very bad Zulu, so she said to me through my translator that when we had called about the interview, she thought that I was the electricity company because that's what she told the last set of researchers who spoke to her that she needed. And in that question, I basically realized the implicit problem of work that is not about producing something. Because not only is it extractative, but it also is sort of, I think, a bit of a violation of this main contract that we're sort of making with society as global health researchers and practitioners, that we're saying we're here to sort of improve something and change something. And we talk to people and they tell us what they want, and then it gets twisted around and turned into something else sometimes another research question, sometimes another project, sometimes a solution that takes a really long time to implement because change is long. But that means nothing to the people who we spend that time with. And regardless of the methods you use, you will continue to come up against that if you aren't questioning your practice all the time to say, what is your work leaving behind right now for the people that you're engaged with? And I think there's been lots of changes that have seen more of that recently, which is great, particularly at the level of sort of like institutions and academic institutions that we partner with. There is this idea of like, what are the things that we are doing to upskill researchers and practitioners in communities that we work in? So what do we leave behind, but also for the everyday citizens that we're working with? And also, is this project actually needed? right now? And that is the most dangerous question a researcher can ask yourself, because sometimes the answer to that is no, actually, it's not. Your deviation of your question is very small. <laughs> You're probably going to end up having to talk to the same people that somebody else has spoken to. And I think that kind of question 
is an important one for critical global health to ask because the reality of the space is where we're doing the work. And so as we ask these questions of ourselves, in a way it feels like we hold ourselves accountable to the big overarching plan, which is change. So I think that's probably the last thing I will say. Great. Thank you so much. I think that's a fantastic place for us to end. Well, of course, there's much more we could discuss. <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your insight with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Kat. And thank you to everyone for listening. This podcast was hosted by Catriona Gold and produced by the UCL Grand Challenges team with the help of Professor Sarah Gibbon, Professor Megan Vaughan, and Nina Quach. Today's guest was Dr. Rochelle Burgess, and the music is by David Setsday. If you'd like to hear more perspectives on this concept of critical global health, please check out the other short podcasts in this series. For a longer listen, you can also head to the UCL Grand Challenges YouTube page to find our recent interdisciplinary roundtable discussion on this topic with scholars from across UCL. 